Hi, this is the Tympanic Eclipse. I'm Britt Ray. So a little preface to this episode. The entire idea for this show was born from my thought that there are tons of interesting conversations and movements happening in universities all over the world that although socially or scientifically useful are just plain alienating or too boring to listen to because of the way that they're talked about, the language that they're written with, and the stuffy settings that they're raised in. There are lots of efforts these days to hack the university, you know, to make its knowledge open source and to reduce the elitism that upholds the ivory tower. And I guess you can think of these audio blips as just another attempt in that direction because they try to digest academic content through sound rather than big old texts. But at the same time, this episode roots itself in the discussion of what's tricky about the contemporary university, the challenges of bringing people together from different academic disciplines to tackle today's problems, and the stickiness around hacking the university to make it more plain and relevant to everyday life. I mean, it's covered briefly. These are big topics. But in order to do that, I turned to Hilary Rose to talk about some of these things. She's a seasoned feminist theorist and sociologist of science. Well, my name's Hilary Rose. I became an academic entirely by accident. Um, It was one of the best things that ever happened to me. As the world of reading, teaching students, opening new ideas, um, is a wonderful world. Um, If you are lucky enough to combine it with a world of political activism, where you're looking for social justice movements, um, it's a privileged life. It's not necessarily easy. It's one of the things you have to put up with is dealing with people who hate you. She had me over, and I sat in her living room, and we Skyped with my very awesome roommate, Sarah Tichetti, who's a PhD student at the London School of Economics studying biohackers. My name is Sarah, without H, which is part of a way of uh, refunding an identity within this ocean of Sarah's with H. So it's <laughs> it's, a, it's a joke that, I mean... So Hillary's married to Stephen Rose. He's a neurobiologist and a thinker known for being at the forefront of what was known as the radical science movement. That was a series of intellectual exchanges between scientific realists and activists, where the activists believed that science, in the face of its technical and social progress, was increasingly becoming co-opted into the state as war machinery and for capitalist purposes. They were flying high off of the momentum of the Cultural Revolution and the May 1968 events in their search for a liberated science. One thing that they really got their hate on for during that time was sociobiological thinking. You know, the idea that our genes are our destiny and completely determine human culture despite environmental factors and therefore also justify certain historical events in human behavior, including the oppression of certain groups by others because of things like genetic status. Since then, sociobiologists have largely been made out to be people who just misinterpreted Darwin, or purposefully interpreted Darwin incorrectly. What's interesting here about sociobiology, though, is the emphasis that's put on the importance of genes as the authors of destiny, the key to action in the world. Today we have a new emphasis on the gene as a key to action, in a way that can help us change the world. Biotechnology is often touted as our contemporary solution for the environmental disaster zones that are slowly swallowing our entire Earth. And it's probably most often seen in synthetic biology, which is the rational design and engineering of simple organisms like bacteria to make them into living machines. 
The idea is that the living machines can then do useful things for us, like clean up oil spills or sense toxins in the water, or become the next cheap vaccine. It's still early days, and although some of these projects in synthetic biology are working well, many of the hopes for it have yet to been realized. But increasingly, science is calling not upon just scientists, but also sociologists, ethicists, that is a hard word to say when you have a lisp, and even artists to help us figure out how to go about working with the power of the gene in new ways. Okay, so when you and Stephen have written against uh, sociobiological concepts like biology is destiny and mm-hmm. these types of thoughts, um, I, I am pulling this out of this kind of nebulous feeling I have towards where we're going with an, a new type of bioindustrial yeah, paradigm. Exactly. That is saying, again, biology is destiny. If we mm-hmm. are to relinquish ourselves from the trappings that we've created from our unsustainable forms of industrialism and now we are turning to biology in order to correct those wrongs or create cleaner engagements with the world that will perhaps allow us to live longer before our um, environmental Armageddon actually comes. And there's a lot, there's a lot of marketing that's going into this bioindustrialism. Um, synthetic biology is one yeah. emergent field that definitely is using it. And in in your opinion, do you think that there's something at stake in this return to a, an investment in the future is being held by biology? Um, I think one of the things that one that it is possible to say is that any natural science on its own simply isn't enough. Um, You know, I mean, obviously the sciences, and nowadays biology is a very big part of that, have got an enormous amount to play. But that said, as well as the environmental Armageddon, there's after all serious discussion amongst the physicists and people who know about bombs as to whether um, human beings will actually make the end of this century. So there's a lot of, you know, these are not, oh, and this one is the um, prison of the Royal Society. I mean, these are not sort of, you know, these are very, um, these are the elite, but who are now actually willing to say this kind of thing. They wouldn't say it in the past. You've got that from more critical voices lower down in the pecking order. You've now got very significant figures saying this, and they're saying it's about a whole lot of things. What do I think about? I'm very skeptical of um, of a discipline proposing itself as the way out. Um, you know, it, the, the matter is too important to be left just to them. Um, one of the things that we saw is that the state turned to the ethicists, particularly the bioethicists, to help them um, manage, I don't want to say regulate, because ethics rarely regulates, but to manage um, the socially acceptable nature of science and technology. This manifestly wasn't working. There was a lot of attacks from the social sciences, including some very interesting work, which really landed up talking about bioethics as an enterprise, not a discipline, um, an enterprise. 
locked into beautifully, it positioned itself in such a way that it was now built into the very structure and the making of science. And there's a paper, a note in Nature, uh, which just says, dial E for ethics, and isn't it handy? You've got an ethicist on campus, you can just go and talk to your colleague. Now, uh, with the massive attack coming in from sociologists, there's now been a sort of budging over, and particularly in synthetic biology, one or two other areas, there's now there are now sociologists built in. If the budget can afford it, they have one of both, right? But it's, I mean, it is really difficult. Is it possible, particularly if you're on the same budget, to actually be very critical with these people who are actually your colleagues? I mean, academics don't usually attack somebody whose office is next door to theirs. You think your thoughts, but you don't actually necessarily go and have a fierce discussion with them. It's how we survive in, in the academic world. So I'm, I'm quite concerned about this development, and I feel quite schizophrenic about it. Half of me thinks, oh, this is really good, people are talking to one another, there isn't contempt. That's splendid. And then I think, but can they talk really critically? Can they talk really honestly? And that worries me terribly, because, you know, there's a, there's a need to have some space between you, some real independence. And, of course, there's not much real independence around in the contemporary university. It's what in anthropology used to talk about as the problem of people going native. Um, not a very elegant, not a very um, uh, civilised way of putting things, or an appropriate way of putting things, but it's the thing about people join the group that they're studying. And instead of always retaining some kind of... that you are both friends with them, but you, you see them as well. And you see them with honest eyes, or as honest as you can make your eyes be. And I think this is extraordinarily difficult. And it's absolutely true. I mean, if you do, um, if you do put um, observer participation in, in sociology, if you're studying nice people, it's really easy. You produce these lovely, warm, sympathetic accounts. But if you're studying, there was an example, a lovely man did a wonderful account of fishermen's lives, their families and everything. It was just terrific. Then he studied the lobby, you know, the political lobby, and he made them come out sounding nice. Now, this was completely unacceptable, as we know otherwise. So I think there are methodological problems that are real, and I don't think they're discussed enough. I think there's not enough um, mediating things, um, and that is that the kind of thing that we're engaged in now, which tries to get things from the narrowly academic out to involve more other people in the conversation, that is incredibly important. That's why Stephen and I have, you know, are doing this particular book, as we laugh and say, well, you know, um, well, we're old enough not to give a damn about what anybody thinks. And that's, um, that's a privilege. It's not bad getting older. Now, as a young academic, it's actually very difficult for young academics to be extremely critical. The kind of analysis which is generated nowadays, and which, you know, we would share very, very different from that wonderful radical science movement, that wonderful fe feminist critique of science, which it was so lovely being part of. And because that was, um, how would it be put nowadays, very in your face. 
So, I mean, you know, don't, I mean, it, I do think that the world we had was, and I think it's because it was full of optimism. I mean, in a very naive way, we thought we were building a more beautiful world, a better world. And I think it's really hard in the 21st century to hold on to that. And that's why I love so many of the new social movements. I love the idea of the 1% versus the 99%. It's just marvellous. Um, it's like when you want the attack on GM food being called Frankenstein food. It was so potent. I mean, it's like having a massive advertising agency, the best in the world, which produced these slogans. And they were fantastic slogans. And I think the 99% and the 1%, it's really going to help people. Because then we know who we mean by the 1% very, very clearly. And even though a great chunk of the 99% are very comfortably off, thank you, we're not part of the 1%. And so, you know, so I, I think we have to understand that we have different roles in different parts of our lives, and that is as the academic side, and then it's the activist side. And you cannot expect to have your academic um, institutions be grateful to you for being an activist. And my difficulty is this, is this, um, this level of energy, this level of organisation is much greater in, in green politics than it is in biomedical politics. That's always been stickier and it was easier when the feminist movement was very strong. So I think, um, yeah, I, th I just think there's a tremendous amount of work to be done. Hey, thanks for listening. <laughs>